People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Now is the time that we bring you the virtual stage of our 12th Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, head over to the BBNR website where you can enjoy the entire day of archives of eight incredible speakers for just $29. Go to bbnrconsulting.us and click on store. One more time, visit our store at bbnrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. Our next presenter is Dr. Aviva Ram. She's a Yale-trained, board-certified family physician and an expert in herbalism and integrative medicine. She's going to talk about healing our microbiome and dysbiosis. This is an issue that affects most Americans, not just women. Many Americans, even those Americans that eat healthy, experience some level of dysbiosis. And we're learning that the microbiome is integral to so much of our health. It's even surprisingly important for mental health. Aviva, we are so thrilled to have you with us at this Achieving Optimal Health Conference. Thank you for being here. I love our conversations. Thank you for having me. As we have told you now numerous times before, you have been such an influence to both Doro and me and the work that we do here at BBNR. So we just can't thank you enough. And we love being your disciples and sharing your wisdom to others and also your joy. We talk a lot about how you seem to be very joyful in the work you do. Could you just talk about that for a minute? It's funny that you say that. I was just talking to a girlfriend the other day and I said, you know what? No matter how old I seem to get, I can never look like some of these elegant women that I see because I always feel like I'm still a kid inside. I can't really explain it. It's, um, I think it's just like part of a natural curiosity. And I'm not always joyous. I mean, I have my moods just like everyone else. I have my days. I have my grouchy moments. But I generally do have a happiness and a playfulness about me. And I think that's really, I do tend to be playful. I can remember when my kids were in middle school, like, Mom, do you have to be so happy? I dance a lot around my house and I sing really loud and terribly. And one of my forms of exercise is a hula hoop. So yeah, somehow I got stuck in fourth grade. That's so awesome. And again, part of a healthy life. And you bring that energy to women's health and you're an advocate for women and children. And you've spent a good part of your adult life doing just that, right? Yeah, I have. I mean, I'm 55 and I started studying this integrative medicine. It wasn't even called that back then when I was 15 and started practicing as a midwife when I was 20. So 35 years of practice now. It's crazy. And you're an herbalist as well. An herbalist and a midwife and a physician. Yeah. And a physician all wrapped up in you. An unusual combo. What are the most common reasons women come to you to see you, to consult with you? And I think we all know the answer, but we'd love to hear what you think. The most common reasons women come to see me really have to do primarily with hormones, all kinds, all things, all the things hormones from period problems to fertility to menopause. And then when I kind of look at the periphery of that, things that may not seem like hormonal problems, but fatigue, brain fog, digestive problems, things that can be related to or caused by hormones. And then the other big area that women come to see me for are autoimmune conditions. But interestingly, there's an important hormonal connection for many women there as well. 
a lot of these issues start in the gut. Could you take us back and really explain as if we've never heard about gut health before? Because we started hearing about gut health here a few years ago, but I think a lot of us still don't understand exactly what it is when we talk about it. And it can also seem kind of like a fad, especially when you hear about it all over. And there are a lot of products like, you know, oversell on probiotics and oversell on gut testing. But there are three huge factors about our gut that have a tremendous impact on our health. One is the ability to assimilate nutrition. If we can't absorb what we're eating and make good nutrition out of it for our bodies, we aren't building ourselves. We aren't nourishing ourselves. The second is something called leaky gut. And leaky gut is a very real condition called intestinal hyperpermeability, more technically, that causes particles in our intestines from our food and also from bacteria to seep across and reach our immune system and activate inflammation and even autoimmunity. And then the third thing is our microbiome, which is also all over our body, but we have a large set of microbiome in our gut that influence everything from our moods, our food choices, our cravings, our metabolism, our brain health, our sleep, our hormones. We're kind of learning there's basically no end to how much our microbiome influences us. And for women, this may be particularly important because our estrogen metabolism is in our liver, which is technically in our gut, and has a huge amount to do with our microbiome and also back to the leaky gut piece of it, women are eight to 10 times more likely than men to experience autoimmune conditions, which are one of the top eight causes of mortality for women and even beyond mortality, which of course is the worst thing, but they can have a huge impact on women's quality of life due to fatigue, chronic pain, need to be on strong medications and so many other factors. So how does the microbiome get there? I mean, we all talk about it and we need the bad ones. We need the good ones. Can you yep. talk about that? Yep. It all starts when we are born, ideally vaginally, because that's where we pick up our first bath of microflora is in our mom's birth canals as we're getting born. And then the next step is breastfeeding. Unfortunately, so many of us, 34% of Americans are born by C-section, so don't get that colonization. And a lot of babies are still not breastfed because mom is unable to or, you know, socioeconomic reasons work, chooses not to, which is a legitimate choice, or is unable to for medical reasons. So that can affect the start right away. The next factor that builds our microbiome after that is the food that we eat. So whether we're bottle fed or the foods that we're transitioned to when we start to eat, that can lay the foundation for a healthy or unhealthy microbiome. High levels of intense stress. So people who find themselves uh, born into, without their control, of course, lower socioeconomic strata with a lot more social stress, economic stress, um, mental health stressors, violence in communities can actually affect the microbiome for many, many people. But also trauma of any kind. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be based on your socioeconomic status. Trauma of any kind. And then here's another really profound and interesting fact. In the United States, antibiotic overuse is a huge public health issue. It's a global public health issue that we have a lot to do with as the culprit in our country. The average American will receive 18 rounds of antibiotics by the time she is 18 to 20 years old, or he. And that antibiotic use can have a, also a profound impact on the microbiome development. So all these things add together 
you pick your factors, right? Whatever affected you. And that can go into shaping the microbiome. And unfortunately, the other end of it is food allergies, asthma, eczema. And then for us, as we get older into our 20s, we tend to get another round of 10 rounds of antibiotics as women for urinary tract infections and pregnancy and other related gynecologic conditions. And as we get older and we're not eating an optimal diet with enough fiber, enough fresh fruits and vegetables, that can impact our microbiome. A study just came out showing that antibiotic use in our midlife can actually be significant of enough of an impact that it can potentially affect our cognitive function in our later years. So this connection between the gut and the brain is becoming all the more clearly powerful as we learn more about it. Can you expand on that again? We hear that it's your second brain, that so much happens there. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so there are a couple of factors here. One is going back to that thing I mentioned called leaky gut. When we have leaky gut and develop systemic inflammation, chronic inflammation throughout our body, not only can that contribute to the things I mentioned like allergies and asthma and eczema, but it can also contribute to chronic inflammation that leads to things like insulin resistance, diabetes, metabolic problems, trouble losing weight, heart disease, and cognitive problems. So we get this chronic inflammation can actually affect the brain. There's a phenomenon, believe it or not, called brain inflammation that can alter how the health of our brain and our cognitive function is. So that's one big factor. The other factor is that we know that the microbiome also produces gases and chemicals that can also systemically and through something called the vagus nerve affect our cognitive function. When that's awry, we can experience brain fog and memory problems and focus concentration issues. But down the road, some of those can also be a harbinger of more significant cognitive dysfunction. Our gut plays a tremendous role in our brain health. Additionally, back to nutrient absorption, we need healthful amounts of nutrients in order to have brain health. And so when our gut isn't reabsorbing nutrients well, that can also affect our brain. I think a lot of people can assume that they either have had or will have or currently have leaky gut. Is that a big assumption? Probably most Americans have some amount of gut dysbiosis, which is disruption in the microbiome. I would say that a large number have leaky gut. I don't know that I could say that most of us have leaky gut, but I would parallel it as a guesstimate, 30% of the population, given the 30% that have autoimmune conditions, metabolic problems, asthma and allergies and eczema, things like that. I would say there's probably a correspondence there. I don't think that has ever been evaluated. So what do you do? Leaky gut and dysbiosis are connected. You can have dysbiosis, so you can have gut microbiome disruption without having leaky gut. But when you have leaky gut, there's almost always microbiome problems. So imagine this. You can have pretty healthy plants and you can have pretty healthy garden soil. Those tend to go hand in hand. You can have something that's affecting the plants. Let's say you get aphids, or let's say you're, you're not getting enough sun on your plants. So the plants can be damaged. If you think of the plants as the microflora, and the soil can still be healthy. But usually if the plants get sick, the soil gets sick. If the soil is sick, the plants will almost always be sick. So they're corresponding, but not always. I don't always see both in both people. 
And things like, well, we're hearing a lot more about small intestine bacterial overgrowth. That's a form of dysbiosis. So it's bacterial overgrowth in the upper part of the intestine versus the lower part of the intestine. And it is becoming more common. Um, There are a lot of different factors that can lead to it. One is the rampant overuse of proton pump inhibitors, things like Prilosec H2 blockers for um, stomach acid problems. Those are really overly used and that can affect gut motility. Again, the overuse of antibiotics. And also, unfortunately, our diets can have a huge impact. But according to historical or, or food anthropological evidence, our ancestors, going back to Paleolithic times, until around modern agrarian culture, got about 100 grams of fiber in their diet, just from their diet, every day, naturally. Our current status is that the American College of um, Gastroenterologists recommends that to prevent colon cancer, we need 30 grams of fiber from our food every day. The average American gets 15 grams of fiber. And we need that healthy fiber to feed the microbiome. They thrive on it. Then that healthy microbiome produces mucus and other chemicals that keep that gut lining healthy so it doesn't get leaky and inflamed. So getting more fiber in your diet, if if there's just anything you're going to do, After listening to us talk, I would say two things, more fiber in your diet and more variety in your fruits, vegetables, legumes, and grains. If you can get fruits and vegetables, six to eight servings in your diet every single day, three servings of legumes like lentils or garbanzo beans in your diet three to four times a week. And when you get those six to eight servings of fruits and vegetables, Get a variety of colors. So iceberg lettuce doesn't count so much. But think about lots of different leafy greens, kale, collards, broccoli, Brussels sprouts. Think about red peppers, yellow squashes. And then get some berries every day or at least a few times a week. Red raspberries, blackberries, blueberries. If you can do that, you will make an enormous difference in your inflammation, in your gut health. You'll probably poop better. I tell you, when I have patients who are constipated and they start pooping again, I sometimes feel like those patients just want to jump through the telemedicine and hug me. And, you know, it's so simple to get things going again, but that fiber can make a huge difference. The other thing I would say for gut health, if there are two more things you're going to do, is get in a good brisk walk, ideally 30 minutes every day, but at least four or five times a week. I have a friend Robin Schutkin, who I know you know, because that's how we met, who's a gastroenterologist. And she says, if you're not moving, your bowels aren't either. And it's so true. And then the other thing is getting seven to nine hours of sleep a night because your microbiome works on a circadian rhythm. They need us to get good rest. They can literally get jet lagged when we're not getting good rest. So four simple things, more fruits and vegetables, a variety of fruits and vegetables, 30 minutes of walking, ideally every day, four to five times a week, and seven to nine hours of sleep. And you're really going to make a huge difference. And you can change your gut health in really just a matter of weeks. Now, there are some really important things that can damage your gut health. Two of them are eating processed foods and getting unhealthy fats in your diet. So any Um, hydrogenated fats, artificial fats. You want to get good quality fats, olive oil, avocados, 
coconut oil, even butter is okay. But avoid those artificial processed foods. And I I know that sounds to some people so woo-woo and organic, but I promise you the science is there. It can really damage your gut, causing leaky gut and your gut microbiome. Pretty simple, really, right? It's not rocket science. I mean, the microbiome stuff and the leaky gut stuff is, is on the verge of rocket science, but the things we can do are really simple. A lot of people don't eat fermented foods anymore. You know, I grew up in a home where um, buttermilk and sour cream, yogurt, these things were part of the traditional diet, not that I loved them as a kid. Sauerkraut was a huge one. And these are lacto-fermented foods that almost every culture around, no pun intended, right, because they're cultured foods, but almost every culture around the world, except modern Western diets, have some form of fermented food. So find something that you love and have a couple of tablespoons of it in your diet. Every day, great. Four or five times a week, great. It can be a couple of dollops of a good organic yogurt on, on a black bean tortilla, and then you've got your beans and you've got a good corn tortilla put some shredded vegetables and a dollop of yogurt instead of sour cream, and you've got a great healthy gut food right there. So so simple stuff, right? doesn't have to be complicated. What do you think about gluten? Do you have thoughts on gluten? I would say that from a traditional perspective, eating wheat goes back, you know, what, 10, 12,000 years, and most people historically have tolerated it over these centuries. But We do know that there are several factors that seem to affect people now. One is when you do have irritation and inflammation in your gut, it makes certain things harder to digest. And those proteins from gluten or the proteins in wheat, specifically the glutens, can actually irritate the gut, even if you don't have celiac disease. So I think our modern diets and our modern living and these problems that are in our gut make us more sensitive to gluten. We also know that a lot of the wheat that we eat is treated with herbicides and pesticides that may be a problem. And also, we eat an enormous amount of it in our society. And we don't eat the things, you know, if you look at um, other cultures, so you look at Italy and a traditional Italian diet where people eat gluten, people are also walking all day long. They walk up and down their, you know, mountains to their villages and home. I've been in Italy in modern times and it's still like that. People have slow meals. They don't tend to eat quite as much, and they eat a large variety of fresh fruits and vegetables with their food. So I think moderation is important. But anyone who is unsure whether they're intolerant of gluten, it's really worth it to just completely go off of it for a good four to six weeks. And if you notice improvement, nobody has to have gluten. So going off of it and staying off of it for a few months, you really may notice some huge turnarounds. And it's really interesting how many medical conditions are associated with gluten intolerance. And celiac is a very serious autoimmune condition. So I do check a lot of my patients for celiac if they have autoimmune conditions, depression, fertility, or other gynecologic problems. There's a whole list of of problems that can really be associated with it. And so in terms of adding that fiber, what do you think about taking a fiber supplement? I think it's great. If you can't get that much roughage in your diet, then absolutely. You can add psyllium seeds to your diet. You can add flax seeds to your diet. You can get them whole and grind them. You can get them pre-ground or you can get over-the-counter products. And there are many of those. I will say, and I will add a caveat to this, that if you already have gut troubles or if you have something like IBS, constipation, gas, bloating, 
add the fiber in slowly. Don't go from zero to six to eight servings a day. Build up over a couple of few weeks because you may notice that when you add that fiber, particularly if your gut microbiome isn't optimal yet, it can make you feel more gassy and more bloaty. So just be aware of that. That can be totally normal. Um, obviously, if you have discomfort, you want to speak with your medical provider. But if it's just a little bit more gas and bloating, it could just be adding the fiber and you need to usually ride that out. And are there two kinds of IBS? Is there like an upper GI IBS and a lower IBS? Or is it pretty much when you talk IBS? Yeah, it's irritable bowel syndrome. So it's it's always lower. And um, it's a symptom of usually gas and bloating. And then some people have just constipation. Some people have just the loose stools. Or commonly, people have alternating constipation and diarrhea. So some days they're loose, some days they can't go. Um, and often one of the cardinal signs of it is if you do have these gassy, bloaty symptoms, um, going to the bathroom relieves it. Or if you have discomfort, going to the bathroom relieves it. But sometimes there's a feeling of needing to go to the bathroom and then it's harder to. So that can all be IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And it's pretty much inflammation of the lining. Is that correct? There can be some inflammation, but that's often a disruption in the gut microbiome. And women are far more likely, like 80% of women compared to men have um, will experience IBS. And about half of all women do experience it. And it's worse premenstrually. So women find it worse when they go into perimenopause and menopause. The hormones start to change and along with it, so does the microbiome. So it's a really common symptom, but it's very resolvable. And right, by doing what you just said, changing your diet and paying attention to it, which is, again, food is medicine, which you talk a lot about. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of data on the connection between stress and IBS, trauma and IBS, and some really nice data supporting meditation and mindfulness, stress reduction for actually healing and resolving IBS. There are also some food sensitivities that are highly correlated with IBS. So working with what uh, is commonly called an elimination diet, removing gluten, dairy. Interestingly, a lot of fruits and certain vegetables can be a trigger for some people. And for some people, whole grains can be a trigger. So there are healthful things and you don't take them out indefinitely. You just kind of experiment with removing them and adding them in to see what might be a trigger for you. And that's a great time to work with an integrative practitioner, a doctor, a nutritionist, nurse practitioner, naturopath who can help you as you figure out what to do if you do find that you're sensitive to certain healthful things that you also want to keep in your diet. Do you find that the testing is reliable that they have for this? So food sensitivity testing that is IgG-based testing, which is not food allergy testing that's different, can be informative and helpful. But a few things. Those, aller those food sensitivities can be transient. So it's really important to just use it as a bit of information and not get stuck on the idea that you can't ever eat those foods. Again, they're not food allergies. The other thing is that often an elimination diet will give you all the information you need. So in my practice, I always start with the elimination diet and I only do food sensitivity testing. If someone's still having symptoms, we're six, 12 weeks in, we're doing this and we can't quite put our finger on what it is and we're trying to see if there's a specific food or food group. For some people, it's an outlier. You know, they just can't eat mushrooms or they just can't eat asparagus or something odd. And we're like, okay, well, what is it? Um, the gut microbiome testing, and this is going to be very controversial um, because I'm not a huge proponent of it. The reason being, people get these results 
And the results promise that, you know, if you take this type of uh, probiotic or that type of probiotic, it's going to somehow fix this dysbiosis. But we don't have enough data yet on one, just because you have that microbe, that bacteria, that virus, that fungus off in your gut, we don't know for sure that it's going to cause any specific medical condition, if at all. And there's no data yet on a day-to-day basis. There's like high-level research data looking at things like certain microbiome and, and cancer or autoimmune diseases. But for the rest of us mortals, um, there's no data yet that says if you take this probiotic combination, it's going to heal that, except for maybe about 15 conditions that have been pretty well studied. I'm not opposed to that testing, and sometimes I do it in my practice. But again, it's sort of when we're up against the wall, we've tried everything else, and we're looking for more information that we just can't get conventionally, and there's nothing obvious that we can put our finger on. Then I'll say, okay, let's let's do that. But for just day-to-day, I don't recommend it. And I think you were going to say there's a great app out there for people with IBS. It's Nerve app. Yes. It's really effective. I've done it, and it's really effective. I just learned about it from a patient whose mother said she was getting amazing results with it. So I just was reading about it recently. I'm like, I'm going to definitely start recommending this. That is amazing information. So what you're saying is that the microbiome is not an organ, but it's self-contained. It is almost an organ. I mean, really, it's an organism that is constantly changing and interacting and adapting to our needs and also feeding us information. So it's part of us, but it's also its own kind of interactive community. So it's like heart health, brain health, and now microbiome health in a way. Hormone health, weight and metabolism, everything. That was a fascinating conversation that I know so many people are going to benefit from. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, visit our store at bbnrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us.